Amen. You can be seated. And uh, if you're new to Midtown, this is the time where we open up Scripture and we dive in, trusting that the Lord works through the teaching of his word. And um, so we're going to Philippians chapter 2. And it's, it's such a coincidence, and I say that because we don't really believe in coincidence here. It's such a coincidence that we're in Philippians chapter 2 in this season when we're coming back as a church. Uh, because coming back, I'm telling you, for some of you, it's gonna be easy peasy. Others of you, it's gonna be completely difficult. And for all you in YouTube land, you may even be thinking, I'm not coming back. And when we come back, it, it's, you're gonna think, hey, this is just so natural because I've done this my whole life. But have, have you ever, have any of you ever gone to CrossFit? A couple of you? Uh, okay, let me tell you, let me educate the unschooled in the ways of CrossFit that if you want to commit yourself to a life of not going to CrossFit, go to one CrossFit class. That's all you got to do, right, Andy? Because you'll go home and your body will say, what have you done to me? Why have you done this? And the next morning you need help getting out of bed, you know, you go buy all these uh, massage machines online, you look for anything to get you back to life and you go, why would I do that? But if you keep going, something is gonna transform in you. And so when we come back as a church, it's gonna feel like that. You're gonna bump into people, it's gonna be confusing, like people are gonna have, some people are maskers, some people are not maskers, some people take this seriously, some people don't take this seriously at all. And then you come back and you have your, your hearts on your sleeve and there's people from your small group that you've not seen. It could be hard and difficult, in fact, it could be so difficult if we're not prepared for that that after we come back, we're so sore, we start saying, I'm not going back at all. Like worship, like am I into worship? Am I into the teaching? Like It takes time, guys, so we're getting back. So we're in Philippians chapter two and it starts with Paul talking about community. And he says, if Jesus has done anything in your life, any good, then take that into Midtown Fellowship. Take that Midtown Fellowship is in the Bible. No, it's not. Okay. Uh, are y'all awake this morning? And so he says, take that into Midtown Fellowship. The problem is you, though. When you take it into this community, you're selfish. You have selfish ambition, and you have vain conceit. And we talked about that three weeks ago, that the only solution for that is for you to value the people around you more than you value yourself. But the problem with that is that's impossible. And that's why we have to keep coming back to Jesus. Last week we talked about what happens when we come back to Jesus. Well, we see beauty, then we realize that we are beautiful, we be beauty, and then we do beauty. So Paul takes us a little deeper this, this week in talking about how do we do that? How do we see, be, and do beauty? So we're in Philippians chapter two, verses 12 through 18. Emily is gonna read for us. Emily, come on up. How long has it been, Emily? Over 430 days, that's how long it's been. So it's uh, Philippians chapter two, verses 12 through 18. Okay, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing 
so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Thanks. Let's pray. Father, um, would you be gracious in the next uh, few moments just to give us insight into your word? And Holy Spirit, would you make it personal? Would you begin to do your work in us? And Lord, awaken our soul. Uh, Lord, exercise our soul. And uh, give us a willing spirit to follow where you lead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the beginning of this passage, Paul is saying, therefore, uh, my dear friends, so remember, he's talking to community, so when he's talking, he's not just talking to you individually, he's talking to us collectively as a church. He says, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So there's a couple of key words here in the beginning of this. One is Paul's saying obey, obey. That's a pretty common word in church, obey. And the second thing he says is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What is he talking about there? Because that doesn't sound beautiful at all. Actually, working out your salvation with fear and trembling actually sounds kind of scary because it seems like what he's saying is if you're good enough and you obey enough and you lead a good enough life, you're gonna be saved. That you take what Jesus did on the cross and your goodness in your life and if you combine those two things together, then you're working out your salvation to reality. So let's take inventory for a minute. How good a person are you? <laughs> Chuckle on the front row. All right, because he's thinking about y'all, not himself, because he's really good, all right? I mean, let's take good by the standards of, uh, let's say the standards of church, because you're sitting in church, so we're gonna leverage that. So, like, how good of a prayer are you? Would you say on a scale of one to 10, one being I never pray, 10 being I'm a juggernaut of prayer, that you are a good prayer? Like, how do you fit in that? I love whoever's phone is doing that right now. They are freaking out. Like, what is that book on tape? What is that? That's directions. I love it. <laughs> so you're gonna laugh, but I was at a Brene Brown. You all know who Brene Brown is? She was lecturing at Vanderbilt, and I was in their auditorium, and there had to be 5,000 people in there. I was sitting in the very top with friends, and she was lecturing and you could hear a pin drop in that place. The acoustics in that room was unbelievable. And I took my phone out to take notes. And when I opened it up, I forgot to take my MapQuest off, you know, my Google search. And it goes, you have arrived at your destination. Everybody in the room heard it. And I nearly died because she stopped her lecture and said, whose phone was that? Yeah, all right. It has nothing to do with our sermon. I'm just saying... Yes, I bow to you. <laughs> Back to prayer. How good of a prayer are you? Do you know that when I first became a Christian, I heard a preacher talk about Martin Luther, who was a theologian that lived back in the 1500s, and he talked about that Martin Luther would get up every morning and pray for two hours before he started his day. 
And if he had a really busy day, he'd pray for three hours. I was like, good Lord, like literally, good Lord. Like on that standard, I don't think I'm a good prayer. Like how good are you as a churchgoer? How good are you, are you a good small grouper? Like are you a good Bible person? Do you give enough? So let me let you in on a little secret of the church that has happened for generations and generations. This point right here, this feeling that you have that you're not good enough in any of those categories, the church has leveraged what you're feeling right now, which is called shame and guilt, and they have leveraged that to get you to do what the church wants you to do. The church has used shame because the church understands, and so do your parents, shame and guilt are an amazing, amazing tool for change in your life. And you know that too. Have you ever stood in the mirror and shamed yourself? And why do you do it? Because you're convinced if I shame myself enough, then I'm gonna change. And shame is a great change agent, but it's not the greatest change agent. And that's not what this passage is saying at all. See, he's not saying work for your salvation. He's not saying work towards your salvation. He's not saying work like you're, like you're saved. I was in this friend of mine's parents' kitchen one day and their mom had cross-stitched this framed cross-stitching. Have you ever seen that stuff? Over the kitchen sink so that she would see it every morning. And it said, Jesus died on the cross for you. What have you done for him today? I know, okay, that, some of you are going, where do I get one of those? <laughs> I, that's not what this passage is saying. It's not saying, look at what Jesus has done for you. Get your butt in gear. That's not what this passage is saying. See, this passage is saying, work out your salvation. In other words, you've got, you can't work something out until you realize that it got worked in. What it's talking about is something has been worked inside of you to such a deep level that this passage is challenging you as the church to work it out to the surface. In other words, if you're in Christ today and we were able to take a spiritual scalpel and we were to slice open your soul and get through all that stuff that you don't like about you and got down to the very core heartbeat of who you are, you know what we'd find there? We wouldn't find a rotten heart. We wouldn't find a horrible person. Here's what we'd find. Holiness. Righteousness. Someone who is gifted by God. Someone who is deeply loved. Somebody who is favored somebody who belongs in the body of Christ and a part of the holy, do you realize that you are so much a part of the holy that if the world was to explode, God would not be complete in himself without you there because you're a part of that now. You're rich. You'd find hope, like powerful hope, and you'd find power there. You'd find somebody with the mind of Christ you would find somebody who is the keeper of promises. You'd find the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. You'd find peace, you'd find justification. You'd find grace upon grace. You would find somebody who is forgiven. You would find Christ in you. You would find mercy, you'd find joy, you'd find victory. You'd find the prayers of Jesus and the prayers of the Holy Spirit dwelling in that innermost part of you. You would find wisdom, you would find 
rewards upon rewards. You would find the living word. You would find all the spiritual blessings that are in Christ dwell in that place. All his promises. You would find somebody who has deep purpose and a call to live out of who they are. That's all inside of you. If you're in Christ, it's all there. And here's what's remarkable about this, all right? You know, when we said you're not working to be saved, you are saved. In fact, you have that stuff in you so much that you can't get rid of them. You can't lose them. Like, you can stop going to church, you still got them. You can stop praying, you still got them. You can give up on discipleship. I'm not gonna disciple anybody. I'm not gonna let anybody disciple me. Y'all stay away. I'm gonna live over here. I'm gonna quarantine from humanity. You still got them. You could never give a dime to Midtown. Never, never give a dime. You still got them. You could steal from Midtown. Like if we passed a plate, you could take instead of give. That's why we don't pass a plate because we don't trust any of you. (laughs) You can stop praying, you can start cussing, you can stop singing hymns and start singing Billie Eilish. It doesn't matter, you still got them. You got them. You got them so much you can't get rid of them. You can't outsend his grace. You can't outrun his love. You can't undo the work that he has already done. You can try to throw away all the gifts that he's given you, but you can't. That's how free you are. You're so free, you can't change your freedom. You can only choose to live as if you're not free. In fact, this love that we have with God, you realize it's a one-way love. God's not sitting up in heaven and going, well, if they do a little bit more, we'll scoop a little bit more. That's not God at all. God is, he he says his blessings is pouring on us like a waterfall, not waiting for us to respond, not waiting for us to give back so that he can give more. It is a one-way love. That is the story of your God. That's the story of the gospel. And Paul is saying, that is in you. Work it out. Work it out. Work out what? Work out who you are. Like, when you go to the Ten Commandments, this is crazy, you know, we did a series on the Ten Commandments a couple of years ago, back in the day before COVID. And uh, we talked about, like, why does the Ten Commandments say don't commit adultery? Because in you is an understanding of relational health that is fidelity and commitment. Adultery is not the expression of the salvation that abides within you. Faithfulness is. Why do we not still? Because what's in us is that we are the givers. Why do we not lie? Because we are the truth speakers. Why do we not covet? Because deep inside of us is contentment and peace and satisfaction, no matter what our circumstances are or what we have. That's what's in us. And even in verse 13, look back at your passage, it says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose that even God is working in you to work out of you what God has put in you. Wow, that was brilliant. Are you with me? In that place, you and God are on the same page. You're a perfect fit. You belong to him, he belongs to you. And Paul is urging us to work out who we are in community with one another. But there's a problem, as Paul always seems to point out. Look at verse 14. Do everything without complaining, grumbling, or arguing, 
so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. <laughs> Why in the midst of him talking about the brilliance of what's going on inside of you would he say, hey, stop your complaining? Is it possible that complaining is the saboteur to me working out what is true about me? So let me ask you, uh, what do you complain about? Come on. Are you complaining that it's too cold in here right now? Okay. Uh, Jed? Are you complaining that it is, uh, do you complain about work? Like, how do you, do you think, I want you to really stop listening to me for a minute. I want you to listen to you. Like, you can even write it down. If you have a pencil, paper, pen, whatever, there's paper on your seats. We'll talk about that later. Don't write on that because we're going to have you turn that in. Don't put any family secrets on that and then turn it in. On second thought, go ahead and do that. That would be kind of cool. Make our reading a lot easier. What are your complaints about your job that you consistently speak out loud? Do you complain about, if you're married, do you complain about your spouse? Never? No? Yes, you do. You know you do. Do you complain about your kids? Do you complain about, like, your house? Do you complain about other people on the road when you were driving here to church this morning? Do you complain about church? Like, here's, I was at Baja last night, which there is nothing to complain about Baja Burrito. I mean, that's like glory right there. That is, yeah, I was gonna make a bad joke, but we're in church. And I was in line, and there were people without masks on, in line, but the sign on the door says, we're still requiring mask. And so they pulled their T-shirt up overneath their nose, and boy, were they barking. They were just barking, complaining, like, don't these people know that Nashville's changed? Like, we're not doing the mask mandate anymore. Like, what's wrong with the people here at Baja? And I know the guys at Baja, and they're awesome people. And I'm just judging them. Like, how can you complain? Like, you're about to eat. They're about to feed your face. And all you're doing is complaining about them? What are you doing? And then I realized I was complaining about them. <laughs> it's like not only do I have the capacity to complain, I have the capacity to complain all the time about everything. You know, the masters of complaining are in the Old Testament. It's the Israelites, God's chosen people, right? What do they have to complain about? And we find the history of a group of people that were master complainers. When they were in slavery, enslaved by the Egyptians, all they did was grumble and complain. But then when God sent Moses, and Moses brought all the plagues to harass the Egyptians so they would let Israelite go, you know, Moses, let my people go. Uh, you know, they complained about that. And then when they got set free, uh, they, got, they complained and grumbled about that. Then when they were in the desert and they were hungry, they complained and they grumbled about that. Then when God sent them manna, they complained and grumbled about that. Really, bread from heaven, that's all we're gonna eat? Then when they got thirsty, they complained about that. Then when they got tired of manna, God sent them quail and they complained about that. And then get this, when they walked into the promised land, guess what they did? Group participation, please. What did they do? Complain. They complained. <laughs> See, is it possible that their complaining had nothing to do with their circumstances? Uh-oh. It had everything to do with their state of heart. And is it possible that your complaining has nothing to do with your circumstances and has everything to do with your heart? Brene Brown, who I said I went and listened to 
a few years ago. I love what she says because she says most of our complaining is just simply blaming. That what we're doing is we're blaming somebody else. And listen to what she says. Blame releases discomfort and pain. We often try to fault others for our mistakes because it makes us feel like we're still in control. Here's what we know from research. Blame is simply the discharging of discomfort and pain. It has an inverse relationship with accountability. Blame is a way that we discharge anger. So blaming, complaining, is a way of me discharging pain. So let's imagine just for a moment that we use this illustration here all the time, the iceberg, that that at the top of the iceberg is the part of our lives that are visible. You remember this? And what if up here at the top of our lives is our complaining? This is our blaming. Like you go to work and it doesn't go well and you feel shame and you feel a sense of failure or you feel like I could have done that better or somebody didn't do what you wanted them to do and you're angry and you, you come home and you start blaming your spouse for not taking out the trash because it smells bad in the house and you walk in and go, why do I have to come home from work and this house smell like this? Why can't you take out the trash? What's really going on here? If we go down here, we realize that down here at the bottom is pain. Pain. And this blame is releasing the pain in a place that's not responsible for the pain. When I complain, I'm literally choosing not to deal with the pain that's in my heart. Rather, I'm making you deal with it. See, what, well, let me read something else from Brene. Brene says, it's difficult to maintain relationships when you're a blamer. Remember, we're talking about community here. Let me read that again. It is difficult to maintain relationships when you're a blamer. Because when something goes wrong, we're too busy making connections as quickly as we can about whose fault it is instead of slowing down, listening, and leaving enough room for empathy and care. I've said this for years, but complaining, and, complaining is actually the pornography of groaning. It's the cheap substitute that's not really the real thing. Because complaining feels like I'm expressing my pain, but I'm really not. Complaining is going around my heart. We were made to groan because groan takes me into my heart. And when Paul says we gotta work out our salvation, all this stuff that's inside of us, if we're not willing to work it out through pain, then all that's gonna come out is complaining and grumbling. Let me try to explain. In Romans chapter eight, it says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childhood, right up to the present time. Creation is groaning. Then he says, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, remember, that's inside of us, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So stay with me, because this is where I'm gonna lose some of you of fear. And then I'm gonna complain about you later, okay? But right now, <clears throat> Christ has done this remarkable thing in me to make me fully alive. For me to live fully alive hurts. It hurts. This is normal. Why? Because fully alive to understand this thing that God's done me, I gotta learn to love myself and become emotionally mature. That hurts. 
because I have to kill emotional immaturity. For me to let this thing come alive, I gotta love you, and I gotta learn to let you love me, and that hurts. The only people in this room that do not know what I'm talking about are people that have isolated themselves, right? Because when you love another person, it hurts. And trust me, to work this out is to love God. So to love myself, to love others, and to love God, it is hard. It's hard because love requires vulnerability. Love requires honesty. Love requires sacrifice and kindness and selflessness and listening and caring and time. Love takes time and that is hard and it hurts. And when you hurt, it creates pain. And if I'm not willing to groan in that place, all I'm going to do is gripe about it and blame other people for it. But when I groan, it takes me into my heart. And with all of creation, I groan. Okay, you're with me? All right, we're almost out of time. But I gotta do the rest of the passage because it's so good, because it's the Bible. <laughs> trust me, the Bible's unbelievable. I mean, it just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. But look at verse 15. He says, then you'll shine like stars in the sky or in the universe as you hold out the word of light. Why is groaning my willingness to walk through the pain of my heart so that I can flesh out this salvation that's been birthed inside of me? Why does that, when I groan, it makes me shine like a star in the universe? Oh boy, this is just so good. Because the world doesn't know what to do with somebody who groans with joy. See, when I groan, I go, it's okay that it's hard. And it's okay that it hurts. It's okay. That is okay. Because you know what I see when I groan? I'm not alone. Look around you. You're not alone. And God is with you too. And when I realize I'm not alone, I find treasure there. And profound joy. To where we become this weird group of people that that groan, it's hard, but we are profoundly joyful. So when Renee and I, we'd been married, gee, I don't know, this was maybe three, four years, and we had made the calculated decision that the car that she was driving that her dad had bought her when she was a freshman in college, it was time for it to go. It was a little Toyota Corolla. And uh, that car had not been cleaned since her dad bought it for her. So we're talking eight years of investment, you know? Sorority, universities, like being married to me, you know, having kids. And so I decide, I'm, before we can sell it, I gotta do a deep clean. I, got, I cannot pass this on to other people. I literally took the seats out. I'm going, this is the way to, I've got, you know, a vacuum cleaner in each hand. And it's just like there's cakes of just stuff there, you know? And uh, no, it wasn't that bad. All right, but uh, it was gross. And anybody that tells you that, I'm not gonna throw women as a category under the, ca under the bus, but y'all can be just as uh, unclean as some of us guys can be. I'm vacuuming, and right down where the carpet meets the bolt and this griminess and this smell and this like, ugh, I look and something's sparkling. And I reached down, it was a diamond ring. And I went into Renee and I said, hey, we just found a way to buy the new car. 
She goes, I lost that when I was a freshman in college. And we laughed so hard because it made a, we got into a fight. I wanted to sell it. She wanted to keep it, you know? No, I'm kidding. It did. But that's a picture of what we're talking about. When we get into the, the hardness, the difficult part of working out our salvation through the grime of our lives, what we find there is this diamond. We find this beautiful picture to where it actually brings joy even in the worst possible situations. Look at verse 17. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, which meant Paul was saying, this is the end of my life. He's dying. On the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. This is the end of my life. I'm gonna die in this prison and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So Midtown, stop complaining. You're, it's a cheap substitute. Put it down, pick up the real thing. Groan, groan. And here's where I ask you, what do you where do you need to groan this morning? What is hard? What is hard in your life this morning that you need to groan? Because it's okay for it to be hard. It's okay. You're not alone. Look around you. The Lord is with you. So let's rejoice. So I'm gonna pray, but I'm gonna pray really slow because I'm gonna give you time to camp out on that where you groan so you can realize you're not alone. Find joy. And then we're, we're gonna sing in response, but I want you to sing from that place that knows you're not alone. So, Father, would you grant us grace right now? to just clear away the smoke screen of complaining and actually travel to that place in our hearts where we're really hurting. Because life is hard. It's, it's hard to, to love ourselves. It's hard to love other people. It's hard to love you. It's hard to work out what you've planted in us, this holiness, this righteousness, this beauty of who you've made us to be because everything in the world is telling us it's not there and it's just hard. Life is busy. We're crazy and we forget sometimes and we just, we forget that it's just hard. Would you remind us it's okay? And Lord, would you remind us that we're not alone? That you're with us? And we're with each other. Renew our joy. Let us rejoy. Rejoice. So Lord, even if we don't feel that right now, I pray that the truth of that would unleash our tongues. That we would call our body, our minds to practice what is most true about us until our hearts and our souls catch up. Lead us in that, we pray. Amen.